0: Buddhist idea of non-self, but uh, not making it too scholastic because uh, I mentioned this at a talk I gave in Armadale on Tuesday night. It came from uh, a comment somebody made recently when they noticed that whenever a religion is run by scholars, whenever the leaders are people who have studied the books and got degrees and they always have trouble with bigotry, dogma, even violence. Whenever the leaders of a religion are the mystics, the practitioners, the meditators, then you always seem to get harmony rather than uh, intolerance. And it's a very interesting uh, reflection, because in all the religions there's always a mystic side. In Islam we had the Sufis. In... uh, Christianity you had the Gnostics, in uh, obviously Buddhism. It's actually very hard to find the scholars, although we still have a few scholars around but they're mostly the meditators. In uh, even Judaism you had the uh, the Jewish saints and in every religion it seems to be that where you have the leaders are the practitioners, the ones who aren't so um, limited to the words in the books and the dogmas and instead you have practitioners, there you have leaders who can speak from the heart rather than from the books and then you seem to end all the trouble in the world. So the talk this evening is not going to be just from the books, it's also going to be from the heart and what it really means about you know the non-self idea. I think first of all you should all understand, I think just from your experience in life, so well, at least we shouldn't have big selves, because in English we call the big selves the ego. And the people with big egos are terrible people to be around. That's why this evening I say I'm going to eliminate you, or at least eliminate most of you, so you've got even small egos rather than big egos. Because the big ego, which creates a lot of pain and a lot of suffering for you, And obviously the idea of coming here on a Friday night is to lessen your suffering, to go away from here more peaceful, more happy, more free than when you came in. Unfortunately in our society that we do, we are taught to get an idea of who we are. We're even given a name and from an early age we're taught what gender we are, we're told which toilet to to go in and don't go in the other one. And it means you're told what race you are, you're told whether you're clever or whether you're not so clever. And we build up from all of the society's uh, input an idea of uh, who we are, who, what a self is. And some of us build up a very strong sense of who we are. And we protect it at all costs and that's called being an ego freak, or rather like a control freak because one of the important things to know about the sense of self, the more you have a sense of ego, of me, then the more you will have what the Buddha called, what you possess, what you own. He made a very wonderful um, observation, wherever there's a self, there is what you possess, your possessions, what in Buddhism we call your attachments, And whenever you have attachments, what you possess, that's what we try and defend. That's where we try and exercise our control. And so it's a wonderful thing uh, in the training of a Buddhist actually to lessen that sense of ego. Not so much by um, philosophizing about it, but by realizing that what an ego does, it controls, it owns. And the more you control, the more you think you own, the more you suffer. The more you own, the more that someone can steal it, the more it can get lost or damaged or whatever else. And much of our lives as Buddhists is realizing how little you really own in this world. Even your house, you don't really own it, the bank does, we all know that. (laughs) And your car, the mortgage or the, the loan company owns that, and so little you own. Now the point is, when you realise that you know the car or your house or your bank balance, there may be some Nigerian scammer agents were emptying it right as we speak. Your bank accounts. It's very easy to do, apparently. So you may go home from here and you say, actually, Brahma, you were right. I didn't own it after all. It's all gone. But when you realize just how little you really own, it actually gives you a great sense of freedom. I remember this one of the fellows who was one of the first people who would come over to our monastery. And his only possession which he had was a Harley-Davidson motorbike. And apparently those ones cost, you know, tens of thousands, 30, 40,000, 50,000 dollars. He didn't have anything else. He would, would stay with friends. He didn't have much in the bank, but that was his pride and his joy, his one possession which he was very attached to. And he told me once, he'd been meditating a long time, he'd been coming to listen to the talks, and once he went to the, the supermarket or the shopping mall and he parked his bike. He went to buy something, and when he came back, it had gone. It was vanished. Someone had stolen it. Now, if that was your major possession, you can imagine how you would feel. But he was so proud of himself, because he'd been practicing this Buddhism and meditation for so long, that when he saw the the bay where his... uh, motorbike was completely empty he didn't get angry he said oh well it wasn't mine anyway it's just impermanence it's just material things you don't own anything anyway you can't take it with you you're not allowed to have motorbikes up in heaven so what can you do with it It makes too much noise disturbs other people (laughs) so he was very proud of himself he actually could actually let it go he realized he wasn't that attached after all I remember he wrote to me afterwards, he said that as soon as I saw it was gone I just could let it go. And it was only after he let it go he realized it was on the wrong level of the car park. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually, his motorbike was still there. You see, but <laughs> you know, it happens to you now and again. But it was just so wonderful feeling that he had that experience, he really felt he lost it and it didn't matter so much. He could enjoy the bicycle or the bike, but the bike didn't possess him. There's a wonderful thing that when we can do that with our physical possessions, we realize that, you know, we can just, oh they're very nice to have, but if they disappear, we don't need to allow it to spoil our happiness. Our happiness is much more important. Isn't it the case you have these possessions to create happiness and peace for you? And in the end, they're like these little monsters, they take over our life with more concern about our possessions than anything else. So the point is that when we realize we don't own these things, we don't actually become these things, And it's a wonderful thing when you don't, when you realize you don't own your house and it's not an extension of your personality, which means you don't have to buy such big houses anymore. It's only big egos need big houses. <laughs> And when you have a big ego and you buy a big house, that's a big lot of work to keep it clean. Uh, and unfortunately these days, in the old days, maybe it's great to have a big house, because you had all your family in there. You had your sort of, you know, uncles and your aunts and your grandparents and your children and their wives and husbands and their kids. You know, in the old days, in a, in a small house, you had many, many people. In these days, you have these big houses. There's only two people in them. I feel very, very sorry and sad for the poor housewives who have to clean it up all day. Oh, that must be a lot of work. Which is why if anyone wants to see just how uh, wealthy people live, people with lots of happiness and peace, you should come to our monasteries and see how the monks and the nuns live. Just for one little room, that's all you need. You can only be in one room at a time. So why do you need a rumpus room, a games room, a family room, a bedroom and all sorts of other... I don't know how many rooms you have in your house. And you've got to work so hard for the rest of your life, paying it off. So I think, actually I'm going to start a building company with these little plans. It's one room little dwelling so you can live (laughs) happy with your family just in one room. Or at least maybe two rooms, a toilet or whatever. But the point is... Why do people have big houses? Why do we feel we need to own so much? It's just, again, the sense of self. We think we've made it once we can, have our big house and our big car and our fancy stuff. One of the wonderful things about Buddhism is we have other ideas. To say, when we have little, then we also are a more humble person. We have less of a big sense of self and our life becomes more easy. Just the practicalities of paying for all this stuff and cleaning it and looking after it. I still remember taking around uh, these uh, visiting women who came from our local community just up in Jarrodale. There were an afternoon out, about a dozen of them, and I took them around. And when they saw one of the huts, one of them turned around and said to me, Oh, if only my house could be so small as this. I get all my housework done in half an hour. I don't know how long do you spend in your housework. Where all the cleaning and mopping is such a burden. So actually the less you have, actually the more freedom you have. And sometimes you wonder why? What is this thing which always wants us to possess and to have all these things? And actually after a while you, you start to see it's this idea of a self, of me. It's actually this idea of self which wants to own, which wants to attach, which wants to control the world. And after a while you realise that that's something which doesn't create happiness and peace and freedom, but it creates the opposite. It's a strange thing as a monk that you move around all different levels of people from the mega-rich to the mega-poor. And sometimes it's a strange thing but it's very um, common for people to, to notice. that The happier people are usually the poorer people, not the richer people. It was one of the first experiences I had when I moved to Thailand. There were 32 years ago in a village which was dirt poor. They hardly had any money at all, just like a barter economy and subsistence farmers. But it was a strange thing, having come from like a big university of Cambridge, where I did know, you know a few laws, multi-millionaires, even in, when they were very, very young. But in these little villages, in the northeast of Thailand, in the backwoods of a third world country, these little villagers would laugh in a way I'd never seen rich people laugh, who could smile and enjoy the moment in a way other people in, say, London, would never be able to do. It was actually quite striking for me, why such people were so happy. And I think it was also, it was because they didn't have this sense of ownership, they would always be sharing with each other. It wasn't mine, it was always more like ours. It's a wonderful thing to actually to stop the sense of self and actually to spread sort of our ideas of possession towards like ours. Isn't it a strange thing in our families and their big houses, everybody has to have their own room, this is my room, and sometimes even married couples, they have their room and I have my room and somebody else has their room, and when we have two separate rooms, it's never ours anymore, it's always just me and mine, and it creates a sense of a self, but with that sense of self, we always get a sense of loneliness, a lack of connection with other people. I think it's one of the problems with our society which values the self so much and the individual so much that we lose the ability to form those relationships called us or ours, the sense of community, the sense of actually being with others rather than being alone with what I own, my possessions. So the self is actually what tends to possess things and it possesses things with the hope and promise of happiness but usually the more you possess the opposite happens, the more worries you have, the more burdens you have. And again, as a monk, you know, with very few possessions, it's a wonderful lifestyle. Whenever I go traveling, which I do quite often, so I'm an expert on this, you see sometimes people going to airports with all this very heavy luggage and I feel so sad for them, especially when it's overweight and they have to pay the extra baggage just coming back from New Zealand last week, there was one lady who had 100 kilos. You know, allowed 20 and she was trying to argue like anything to try and sort of, you know, get it going for free. And there was me who comes up, this little bowl and, and my bag and they actually insisted on weighing it. My bowl was three kilos, had my robes in it, my bag was two kilos. And that's all I had now even actually cabin bags you're allowed seven and i only have five and let alone any and i go all over the world with that sort of stuff and it's great actually i think they know me at perth airport now when i come through the customs they say, where's your bag sir so my mum. oh yeah sorry i forgot it was you again <laughs> but can you can imagine just what it's like having few things you can actually go through life so easily i remember one of the greatest times, I always remember this, was after five years as a monk you were allowed to just leave your monastery and just go traveling by yourself and you took all of your worldly possessions with you, everything you owned in the world you carried on your back and so obviously before I started I managed to limit much of that but after a couple of days and a half of that I dropped away and after about a week, just walking from place to place with everything you owned, just a bowl, a few spare robes, and a little bag, and that's all you had. And it was one of the most wonderful times of my life. Absolute freedom. I could get to any crossroads. I could turn left, right, go straight ahead, or go backwards. I was completely free. Why was that? Because I owned nothing. Just the robes and the bowl on my back. There was a wonderful sense of freedom there, which I'm hoping I'm trying to impart to you. Just how the less we own, the more free we are. Now these days people say, well you can't talk these days, Ajahn Brahm. Look at your country estate at Serpentine. (laughs) Look at your your compound in town. One acre of all these buildings I've got here, which I can roam around in at night. You've got a townhouse and a country estate. (laughs) But the point is that you don't own these things. You can make use of them and enjoy them, but you don't own them. And that's the most important thing with your possessions. To realise you can enjoy them, you can enjoy your house, you can enjoy your car, you can enjoy your money, your wealth, but never think that you own them, that they are you. And that's really what you are. You know how it is sometimes, some people are very, very wealthy, and they're just just so proud, they've got such big egos, they're terrible people to be around. And because they're so terrible to be around, they think how great they are, that they have got no friends, because no one likes such people. I know there's other people who are very, very wealthy, you would never know it, they're just ordinary people, they're so friendly and kind, and you love to speak with them and be with them, because they don't wear their wealth on their ego, on their self they don't tend to own it, they can enjoy it and when there's a good cause they can just give it away. And that way they can really enjoy their wealth, they get a lot of happiness out of it. And it was wonderful again, the times when I did have money, every time which I had money and I gave it away, that was always the best money I'd ever spent. You know, the I don't know if I told you this story, before I was a monk I had a motorbike. Can you imagine me on a motorbike? Vroom vroom. <sighs> but when I decided to become a monk I realised that monks and motorbikes don't mix. Actually I have been on a motorbike once as a monk and that's the only time in Thailand. I was in this forest and I was going to dana. And they came, I thought they'd come in a car, but the road was out, the only way you can get through was on a motorbike. So I had to sit on the back of a motorbike, and I realised why it's not really allowed for monks to be on the back of a motorbike. Because when you wear robes like these, a little bit of wind, it all balloons out, and it's so hard to stay on, you almost like float up into the air, just like a big balloon. So never again go on a motorbike. But anyway, this was before I was a monk, when I used to have trousers and stuff. And, when you're a uh, monk, you don't need a motorbike, and you, know, you realise you don't need money as a monk, so I had to get rid of my motorbike. And so I had a couple of friends, and they said they were interested, but they never actually came around. But eventually, it was a friend of my mother decided that they wanted a motorbike. And this is one of my wonderful memories of the time when I could renounce all my possessions, because they came around, and I was... Uh, they had a look at the motorbike, it was a very nice bike, and they asked, uh, yeah, you know, they'd like it, how much was I going to sell it for? And I said, well, you know, let's go upstairs so we could settle up, upstairs, you know, where my mother was. Because I wanted my mother to be there, because if she wasn't there, I'd be in big trouble. Because when we went upstairs, I said, do you really like it? And the guy said, yes, I want it, how much? I said, if you want it, you can have it for free, for no money. I always remember him turning around and looking at my mother and my mother saying straight away, don't worry, he's okay, he's going to be a monk. (laughs) Because this fellow couldn't understand, he couldn't comprehend that someone would give away an expensive motorbike for no money at all. And it's wonderful, because what do you need money for as a monk? What do you need sort of a motorbike for? And so you could give it away. And I remember my mother writing to me later on saying that he always remembered me because that was the first time in his long life someone had had given him something for nothing. Not expecting anything back in return, just giving away. What a wonderful thing that was. I enjoyed that so much. So the point is that when you you can actually get rid of possessions, let go of things, it makes you feel more happy, more free. But the point is, why is it that people don't want to give those things away? Why is it that we own these things? Why is it we worry when you know the motorbike gets missing from the parking lot? It's all because we want to sort of control our possessions. But it's not just our physical possessions, you know, the next thing I'm going on to, the sense of self, very often we measure our sense of self by our family. and when we think our parents and our children are ours. And again, this Attachments, which come from a sense of me. The self is the thing which owns other people. And you know what happens when you have a relationship and it becomes a controlling relationship where the other person thinks they own you. Just how uncomfortable, how unpleasant that really is. And it's a wonderful thing to have a relationship where there's no ownership, we can enjoy each other's company for the time being of that relationship giving each other that sense of freedom but trust as well. And then we have a relationship which hasn't got this terrible control freak business. I know many times that some people come here and they're sure their partner's having an affair with somebody else and they're not at all. It's just that they're controlling and they ring them up at work and they may be in the toilet at the time because you do have to go to the toilet when you're at work And say, I rang you up, you weren't at the desk, where were you? I was in the toilet, yeah, I've heard that one before. It's very hard to prove where you were in the toilet or whatever else it was, and people get so suspicious. And why do they get suspicious? Why are they so control freaks? Why do they always try and own their partners? And it's that ownership is actually what the sense of self does. And if we can actually learn not to own so much but to enjoy our physical possessions, to enjoy our partners, our friends, our relationships, but also be able to let them go when it's a time to let them go, then we find we have so much more freedom in this world. You know how much you own things but when those things are almost taken away from you, just like that friend who almost lost his motorbike realized that he wasn't attached to it when he thought it was being taken away. All fear, Where fear comes from is when things which you're attached to, which you think you own, is about to be taken away from you, or you think you're going to lose it. That's the origin of fear, where your attachments are being threatened. It is a wonderful thing to be free of those attachments. So, when you realize you don't own, you know, the people around you, when you can enjoy their company but you can let them go, it means when somebody gets very sick and dies, you don't get so upset. Why is it that when, say, your son dies, you cry, but when somebody else's son dies, you don't cry? What's the difference there? It's only the word, my, just two letters, that makes a the difference there. And this is, you should actually start to understand now, is it really your son or your parents? You know, it's just the word we use, this is my father or my son or my daughter, my sister, whatever. But what do we mean really by that? For anyone who's ever had a child, you know this being comes into your womb and comes out a few months later, and you don't know where they've come from. And you know that's somebody completely different than you. It's not the son of the father and the mother, it's somebody completely different. Their personality, their character are not the same. And we know as Buddhists, they come from previous lives. We don't know where they come from. That's one of the dangers of giving birth. You don't know what you're giving birth to. It can come from anywhere. And you know, really, that's not yours. It's just like a little seed which is given to you to nurture for, you know, 15, 16, 18 years. You do your very best. But it's not you or part of you. And after 16, 17, 18 years or whatever, they leave the nest and they go off wherever they need to go. Why is it that sometimes that we get so attached to our children, especially as mothers, you're worrying about them even though they're 40 or 50, as my mother still worries about me? My goodness mother, I'm I'm grown up now, you don't need to worry. But why is it that we people do that? And because they worry so much, Again, they have no peace and no freedom and no happiness. I tell parents, you should remember what birds do. That the birds, they can sit on that egg for, you know, for days on end. You know, some of you can't even sit still for half an hour in meditation on a, on a nice soft cushion. Imagine what it's like sitting on a hard egg. But the birds, they manage to do this and then they sort of nurture this bird, getting it all sorts of worms and other food all day never thinking of itself but as soon as that bird can fly the small chick can fly this out of the nest mum and dad they just go off and enjoy themselves they don't worry anymore just kick kick. this is what you should do once your child gets big enough to fly kick them out okay now look look after yourself just be like the bird or oh, just like the kangaroos in nature, they have their joey and they really look after it, but the next year when they have a new joey, the joey for the year, they've got to fight them off, they to have to be independent now. Well, why is it that we sort of, you know, that we get so possessive of our children and so controlling? And you all know probably what it's like to have a parent who's always been so controlling. And now you do the same to your children. So why is that? Because we think it's ours, an extension of our personality. Sometimes people measure themselves by their children. When we have like a sense of understanding of the Buddhist idea of non-self, it really comes to the point to realizing how little we possess, how little we own. We don't even own our own body. And so that we can allow our body to get old, to get sick and to die. When we don't have any possessions, Possessions. We don't have this possessiveness. We can let go more. The bigger the self, the more we control, the more we want to own, the more suffering we have. The less we own, we can enjoy this body because you don't own this body, you're only renting it for about 80 years and then you have to give it up again. And actually by 80 years it's time to give it up, believe me. I <laughs> don't know why people want to keep on going on after 80 years. I always say that, you know, when you're sort of uh, 50, you think, oh, maybe 70, that's long enough. And when you get to 69, no, maybe 80. When you get to 79, no, 80 is still too young to die, maybe 90. (laughs) It's always tomorrow we want to die, never today. But the point is there that when we understand what our body truly is, it doesn't really belong to us, we can let it go. We don't have to worry about it so much. It's like I've got all these responsibilities. I'm supposed to be a spiritual director. Last week I said spiritual dictator, it's not spiritual dictator of the Buddhist Society. Spiritual director. You don't dictate. You're not the owner. And I have this monastery here. Tomorrow morning I have to go overseas again to Indonesia. But when I go overseas, I don't take the Buddhist Society with me. I don't own my monastery. It's a wonderful thing to have this idea of non-ownership. It means I'm not the abbot, I'm not the spiritual director. When I come here I'm the spiritual director, when I go to my monastery at servant Time, I'm the abbot, when I get on the plane I'm just a traveller, that's all. What I mean by that is when you put on this, this self-idea of being an abbot then you always have to be worried about your monastery because that's who you are. If you're a spiritual director of a Buddhist society of West Australia you always have to be worried about it. If you're the president of the Buddhist society you always have to be worried about it. But when you can actually do your job and then afterwards let it go, then you find you are free, you're not measuring yourself by any of these responsibilities and duties which you have. When you don't carry around your uh, job titles and job descriptions, it's amazing just how you can be free. The less self you have, the less you worry, and the more free you are. You can let things go more and more and more. And when you do let things go more and more and more, you find again a little bit of fear comes up. It's a fear of you losing the old identity which you once thought you had. That you were the CEO, or you were the owner of your business, or you were the head of your family or you were the mother, or you were whatever else it was which you define yourself. So when we do the investigation into non-self in Buddhism, instead of using it philosophically and saying, what is this soul or self business? We know the self by what it does, by what it owns. And the less you own, the less you are an individual. And the more you can merge with others, just like indigenous peoples, never had any idea of like ownership of personal property. They had the idea of communal ownership to share everything. It's only the later generations of so-called civilized people had this idea of personal ownership, with all the stress which that entails. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we can make use of these things? but never thinking that they are ours or they make this being called me up. And that way, when we don't get attached to these things, we can enjoy but also be able to let them go. For example, that sometimes the people come to this temple over here because they are grief-stricken at the loss of one of their dear relations or friends. Why do people grieve? when somebody dies. It's all because it's almost like part of them has died. It's their ownership, their sense of building up a self with this person and now when that person has gone it's as if part of them has died. We're measuring ourselves by the people we love. We're measuring ourselves by our children, by our friends and that's why we suffer. We could only realize that these people, they weren't really ours, they were our friends. They come and they leave our lives, that's the nature. Whatever arises and comes into our lives as friends must one day leave. That's the law of nature of impermanence. We can only realize that from the very start, that all of our relationships are temporary. We don't own that person. One day they will leave us. As the Buddha once said, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will one day become separated from us. At first that might make you afraid. But when you go deeper into that, it brings you a lot of peace and freedom. It's the same as the meditation mantra, which we've been teaching for many years now. When people on retreats, use a mantra along with say your breath to try and focus your mind, but some of those mantras have inherent meaning and one of the mantras we use with great success is when you're breathing in, you recite to yourself, I will die, as you breathe out, that's for sure. I will die, that's for sure. I will die, that's for sure. And it's not the Buddhists are weird, it's actually, it works. So you can try that reciting that to yourself again and again and again because the reason why that works and creates a lot of peace because you know it's true, but number two, once you remember that you think, what am I worried about so much, about all these things? I will die, that's for sure. If you can't pay your bills, I'm going to die soon anyway, what the heck? Somebody else's problem. (laughs) Or whatever else happens to you in life, I will die, that's for sure. Isn't that a wonderful sense of freedom? At last, you can finish all your work. At last, all the dishes, you don't care whether they get washed or not anymore. <laughs> You're dead. So it's a wonderful sense of freedom. Why does it give a sense of freedom? It's because it's a truth which tells you just how little you own in life. One of the great teachings of the Buddha, and it's actually his second sermon, was actually on the, the teaching of anatta You've got to be very careful, actually, when you pr- pronounce the... The Buddhist term for non-self, anatta. Because I know that there was this western monk who once, in England, he pronounced it anatta, or anatta. And he was talking to this English lady and said, you know, you're anatta. (laughs) And that natta is like, you know, someone who's crazy. (laughs) So really careful, don't, don't, it's not anatta, it's anatta. If you call someone anatta, they (laughs) get into big trouble. But in the Anatta Lakinasudha, the Buddha's second sermon, he was amazing, just the Buddha made it very, very clear. He said, you don't own anything, monks. You don't even own your body or your mind. So why, he was actually telling, why are you trying to control your mind in your meditation? It doesn't belong to you. It's a wonderful teaching, because it takes this idea of ownership even deeper. All of you who are worried about the thoughts which happen in your mind, good thoughts, bad thoughts, are they really your thoughts? If they are your thoughts you'd worry about them a lot, you'd try and control them. How many people when you meditate try and control your thoughts? Does it ever work? You'll find in meditation the more you try and control things just the more suffering you have. And the Buddha said it's a waste of time because you can't control these things. And instead you disengage. they're not my thoughts none of my business. That's one of my other wonderful mantras, not my business. <laughs> so, when you meditate there, just not my business, not my business, nothing's my business. When the thought comes in, it's not my business. You get tired, not my business. You know, something happens in the past, not my business. The future, not my business. It's nothing my business at all. Isn't that wonderful? You've got nothing to think about, nothing to worry about. You're just everything is nice and peaceful. You are free. When you disengage that way, it's a wonderful thing that when you don't control all this happiness and peace just comes by itself naturally. You realize the more you control the more suffering you make in life. the more you learn to flow with things, not controlling them, but leaving them alone, the more peace and the more bliss you start to feel. And this is actually one of the reasons why we teach meditation. Because after a while, the penny drops. When I try and force my mind, no way will it be peaceful. But when I just say, it's not my business, when you disengage, I will die, that's for sure. So what if I get peaceful or not peaceful? Who cares? Let it all alone when you stop controlling, you get more and more still, and in that stillness, more and more happiness. I've been teaching this for so many years now, and when people really do it, it works. You just sit there and literally do nothing. You don't control, you let go, you make peace with things. You realize it's not mine, doesn't belong to me, so it's not my business and then the world starts to disappear. And you get very peaceful and very happy. You understand those people who've been coming here long enough now, the most important word in meditation is letting it be, letting it go, which is the opposite word for controlling. This is one of the reasons why people meditate, because when they meditate they do get very peaceful and it's very happy and enjoyable. Meditating, and you realize the more you let go, the more peace, the more happiness you have. If you let go a little, you get a little bit of peace and happiness, you let go a lot, you get lots of peace and happiness. If you really let go, you get ecstatic. And have a wonderful time, the old sex better than, um, sort of the bliss better than sex, uh, in deep meditation. And you only do that the more that you can let go. And that teaches you an important lesson. If you really want to be happy, and this is what all the controlling is, trying to get happiness in your life, you're going in the wrong direction. How much, what is our Western society? We're all just control freaks. We try and control nature, you know, we try and control the traffic, control everything. The more we control, the worse it gets. That old story I said in Jerusalem where they stopped, the doctors went on strike for two weeks, a few years ago. Told it's an Armada. In Jerusalem, a few years ago, the doctors went on strike for two weeks and the death rate plummeted in the hospitals. (laughs) I know there's a few doctors here, but look it up, that actually happened. (laughs) Sometimes we're so afraid of leaving things alone, we think it's all going to go wrong. Actually, it never goes wrong, but what happens is it really challenges our sense of self and what we're here for we really think we're here if we want to be happy we have to make it happen and in the the deep meditative mystic religions not just Buddhism you know for things like Sufism or Taoism just the going with the flow in mystic Christianity surrender to the w- surrender the will surrender the controller in basic Buddhist meditation let go of the sense of self You find that there, you find the deep pieces and the truth of your life. The more you let go, the more happiness you feel, and the more sense of freedom. And as you go deeper and deeper, this is where you find those eternal truths. It is a sense of self, which created the controlling, which created all the suffering. If you really try and control very hard the world, you get very frustrated. It's one other thing which you can probably recognize yourself. The stronger your will, the more easily you get frustrated. And from frustration, we get anger, guilt, depression. All coming from our willfulness, wanting to be the one who controls the world. When you realize what the world is, you this is the way the world is. You stop trying to control it so much. You understand this is the nature of the world people die, what do you expect? Sometimes people get upset when people die young. But there was a story which I was told as a young monk, which actually shows you how to accept the death of young people. This was a story where a monk was staying in a in a hut in the jungles. And uh, in those days, the huts were just made out of bamboo and thatch. There was a big storm one night. Trees started coming down, being uprooted, and the monk was so afraid because if one tree or even a big branch fell on his hut, there was no protection there, it was just made out of bamboo and thatch. And if a tree fell on him, he'd either sort of break bones, maybe even be killed. If he broke bones, there was no person to crawl to, so he would probably die an agonizing death. It was such a dangerous situation, he didn't sleep all night. And during the storm, he heard many trees come crashing down. must have been very close to his hut. So in the morning, when the storm stopped, he went outside his hut to look around and see what the damage was. He'd survived. And sure enough, he saw some trees and big branches that just missed his hut. But then something else took his attention, which was more important than the big branches and trees which had been uprooted. He looked on the leaves on the forest floor, the ones which had been torn off the tree by the storm. And he'd noticed, as you would expect, most of the t- leaves which had been torn off the tree and lay dead on the ground were the old brown leaves, leaves which had lived a full span of days on the tree. But amongst those brown leaves there were a few yellow leaves, amongst the yellow leaves and green leaves, and some of those green leaves were so bright green he realized they could have only sprouted the day before. They too lay dead on the forest floor because of the storm. He got what we call in Buddhism an insight, an understanding about the truth which applies to all aspects of nature, including human nature. He looked up on the trees to see what leaves were left. And as you would expect, most of the leaves still on the trees were the green leaves. But amongst those green leaves were a few yellow leaves and there were even a few curly old brown leaves still hanging on to the twigs of the tree. Even though young green leaves lay dead on the ground. He realised a simile of nature when the storms of diseases, accidents, suicides or deaths go through our community, you'd expect them mostly to take the old curly brown leaves. But even though, that's usually what they take. They always take a few young green leaves as well. And there's nothing wrong. It's not a fault of nature that the young green leaves just sprouted the day before get torn off the tree of life. It's just nature, that's all in the same way that sometimes young children die whereas other curly brown leaves, and I see quite a few curly old brown leaves in front of me over here <laughs> still hanging on year after year after year while young children die. say, so why? Is it mean something gone wrong? No, this is nature. When we understand the law of nature we can let go according to the law of nature we realize we don't control nature even though the best we can possibly do with science and technology to control nature you will never be able to succeed that way and you really want to succeed it's very expensive to stop the aging process especially with botox and other stuff it's a lot of pain and suffering why do you want to do that So it's much better to actually understand the law of nature and learn to let go into the laws of nature. To realize one can't control nature, one has to let nature be, to accept the world rather than always fighting it all the time. And here I mean, sort of accepting old age and death, realizing this body is only ours for a short, short time, realizing we can't control very little in this world, and when we start trying to control it, then we can let go much more. When we let go much more, we can be more at peace. Sometimes it's challenging us because the more we let go, it's as if we're disappearing. Our individuality, the sense of self, of separateness, starts to disappear. But you try that and it's not such a bad thing after all. The more we disappear, the more we can be with others. The more we disappear, the less we can be hurt by the other uh, ways of the world. The more we flow with nature and become part of nature, rather than individuals always trying to control nature according to our will, the more free we will feel ourselves becoming. That's certainly what happens in meditation, and it happens in life. So many things in life you can do nothing about, and that's where we really learn the benefits of letting go of realising we're not in charge. In the end of your life, this will be very plain to you that all of your controlling will never be able to stop the onset of death and all of your possessions will not be able to help you. You have to let them all go, all your family go. And at the end, this just so plain to you that none of this belonged to me. It was only a friend. It was only just things which I had for a short time. And if you made use of your possessions, if you loved your friends, if you were kind and caring to your family, then you'd realize that you've made the best use of the time you had with these things. And at the end of your life, it's just so clear, even your body doesn't belong to you. You've cared for it so much. Now's the time to let it go. And even your feelings in your mind don't belong to you. When you can let that go too, then you never get reborn again. You can become enlightened. Enlightened means you realize just how little you own. When you own little, then you can be with everybody. You can merge instead of rather being alone. When you can merge and just disappear, then it's a wonderful state of peace and freedom. So the idea of self is what actually stops us being free. It doesn't actually create freedom, it creates more turmoil. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, it's the ones who have the big egos, who want to control and control the whole world, create all the problems for other people. And you know, sometimes religious leaders try and control others. When they try and control others and convert others and make this world all the, you know, their sect or their religion, you can see the problem that has. It all comes from these huge egos, control freaks the ones who really understand what religion truly is. They don't try and control at all. That's why you can be free and be at ease with others. The more you get eliminated, say as a Buddhist, the more you can have friends who are Christians or Muslims or whatever. It's a wonderful thing actually to see just the way the Buddhists can go to churches or mosques, other places, and be friends with others. Why is that? because we can let go more and more and more. The more you can let go of your individuality, the more you can merge with others and find friendship with others. If I was a Buddhist with a capital B, I could never feel at ease with a Christian with a capital C. But when you can let go of all of these ideas and descriptions, then why can't you be at ease with other people? the more you eliminate the sense of identity and self, the more you can be at ease with others. So the Buddhist teaching of non-self is not just a simple teaching, but it goes to the very depth of how to be free, how to be at ease and how to get happiness, how you can enjoy life without possessing life, how you can have friends without attachments, and how you can enjoy your time on this earth according to nature, but understanding the rules of nature. It never belong to me. Now's the time to give it all up. And you can let it all go and finally be free. So the teaching of self or non-self is always realizing just how little you own. Every time you have pain and suffering, a death of a loved one, a disappointment in life, it just shows you just how out of control life is. So whenever you get an anger, ill will, that's just complaining about life. So we have to get real and accept life for what it is, just like the leaves on a tree, to be able to allow them to fall. And all of your controlling won't make that life different. All of your controlling and screaming just makes you suffer more. So where we can learn to be more at peace with life, because we don't try and control it so much, then can have more happiness and freedom in life. Please realize how little you own. And that's the story tonight about non-self. Okay, has anyone here got... hope you're all eliminated now. Has <laughs> anyone got any questions about this evening's talk, about how to eliminate all of your sense of self? Yes, go on. What is meant by building up the self-concept of young people? I think, I don't know whether that's really sort of a good idea, because I think it's much more important that uh, young people learn the sense of togetherness, of friendships, of communities rather than individuality, I know you're a school teacher, I mentioned this before, I always thought, even as a school teacher myself, school is so competitive and kids are individuals and they're competing against each other you know, for the best marks and even to get to university, get the best places afterwards. That's a terrible thing to have for kids. And because there is too, so much competition, it means they are individuals when they go out into society. And they find it very difficult, right, to live and form relationships with you know, other genders. And you know, many marriages, sort of, uh, or relationships, they don't last. And why is that? Because we never really learned at school how to work with other people. So it's more important, I think, to have a sense of like community, rather than a sense of individual, rather than a sense of self, a sense of us, rather than a sense of me. And you say, well, I thought of, Uh, in a school, to be able to affect that is to have maybe 40% of the marks at the end of the year averaged over the whole class. 6% the personal score and 40% the whole average. So it's in every child's interest, especially the bright children, to go out and help the, the weaker children because they get something out of it. So it actually fosters a sense of working together. Because as you know, whether it's in the, even in the staff room at a school, sometimes there's too much uh, individuals fighting each other for the promotion or whatever. And in the staff room, in a monastery, in the office, we have to learn how to cooperate, not just to compete. So I think it'd be great if the children learn more how to uh, the relationships together, not just me, but us in this together. could think that you know, indigenous societies they would always have you know they wouldn't think of themselves as selves or individuals but they would be the family or they'd be the, the tribe or the village or whatever. And they wouldn't have a personal identity. I saw that certainly in Thailand because the village was the identity. You know, they weren't so much an individual they were a part of a whole. Does that make sense? Quite sure the value that it mean, makes them to be very competitive in the world and it creates you know, the sense of once they have a sense of self they measure their self against others and it's against others rather than being with others and it's a measure nothing it's terrible uh, sense of turmoil for children you know I'm not clever I'm not good at sort of footy lightning like, you know, my friend is you know I'm not as pretty or as uh, smart talking as somebody else and that's why many when unfortunately, some children do commit suicide, because they don't measure up. Yeah, I think so. It makes a lot of sense to me. Instead of having this, this big emphasis on the self, on me, more on us, so we can actually form relationships and measure ourselves by a relationship, rather than just being just very, very alone. I think many of you notice that in your life. Sometimes you feel so alone. Why is that? Because we have to build up this idea of a self. And whatever self you build up, it's never good enough. It's amazing, sometimes you talk with successful people, and they think, no, you know, I'm not good enough. It's very easy for, even as a monk sometimes, you know, think, oh, I didn't give a good talk tonight, oh, I said something wrong, oh, I'd go crazy if I had a sense of self and measured up. because you'd always be judging yourself. And you know know what it's like when you judge yourself, you measure yourself, it's never good enough. How many people in this room are satisfied with themselves? (laughs) You understand what I mean? But when it's an us, we can actually, we don't get that same sense of uh, inner turmoil and judgments i don't know if that answered your question but it actually got me on another issue so thank you for that yeah okay i distinguish between the two is like using the word ownership and just like renting because you now when you rent an apartment and when you own an apartment so there was a different board game and I think that the idea of renting, of actually, you know, having responsibility for something temporarily, is much closer to the, the truth of, of our lives. When we have an ownership, you know, we forget that this is only a temporary possession. We think it's ours, and it's that which causes the attachments. That is now that's a chain which binds us to know our possessions. Even you know, if you realise you only have these things for a short time, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, then you know, you're old enough to know how fast time goes. And you know, the years have gone down very, very fast. So, you now we have to give all these things up eventually. So, you know, just enjoy them. But don't attach to them and don't be possessed by them. You now, why do you have these things anyway? To worry about? Why you have these things you know, to, to make use of? For your enjoyment, the enjoyment of your family, the enjoyment of others. Well, there's the old um, story of, I don't know, the last time you heard this story of just the way that uh, villagers used to catch monkeys many years ago. With a very simple trap, they just uh, hollow out a coconut chain the coconut, or tie the coconut to a tree and put a small hole in the coconut shell just big enough for a monkey to put his hand in. And they put a banana inside the coconut and sooner or later a monkey would see that banana and put its hand in to get the banana but the hole is only big enough to put its hand in or fist in when there's nothing in its fist, It couldn't actually take it out with a banana and then sort of he'd be trying for hours trying to get the banana out with its fist. He can put his hand in but he can't get his hand out with something. And when the hunter came, you know, the monkey would not let the banana go and escape with his life. He would still try even harder to pull that banana out but couldn't do it. And the hunter would capture that monkey that way. And that's a very good symbol in life sometimes that we just won't let things go even though sometimes it means our, our death or our suffering or our sort of internal pain. Why doesn't the monkey let the banana go? Because I found it, it's mine. There are many other mu- uh, bananas in the, in the forest he can get, but he wants that one. And he can see the simile there in our life. You know, maybe sort of, you know, like a boy falls in love with a girl.